This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Jackie. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. Get me back my It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all Coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, New York, 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. The United States Police Force has everything under control. I'm going in. John Carpenter's Escape from New York, the high adventure of the future. One man must go in where no man has ever gotten out. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. The greatest escape of them all is about to blow the future apart. Alrighty, folks, welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration. This is the John Carpenter Appreciation Month. We're continuing the trend of celebrating everything and anything by this man's body of work. And this week, we are reviewing Escape from New York from 1981, directed and written by... John Carpenter, also written by Nick Castle, produced by the legendary Deborah Hill. Also boasts uh, early visual effects by uh, a certain director named James Cameron as well. But joining uh, me this evening is my good buddy, Jason Arthur. How are we doing tonight, Jason? Good, brother. Uh, I, I appreciate you having me on. This is going to be fun. Yeah, we've been, I've been on your show a couple of times. Well, now it's time for you to be in the hot seat. There it is. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah, we've tried getting together a couple times before, but we've had a couple of snags because, you know, folks, we don't just podcast for a living, you know, right? <laughs> we there's, also have day jobs and shit. There is adulting, which sucks sometimes, but it's got to be done. Yes, it does. But uh, I got to ask you, before we start getting into the meat and potatoes of the film, do you remember the first time you saw this? The first time you saw Escape from New York? Oh, God, years and years ago. I can't tell you exactly, but uh, um, when you wanted, well, when we talked about doing this, um, I, I did sit down and watch it again, but I, it's it's been years since I've seen it. And I'm glad that I did it again because it seems like, especially with movies like this, uh, the more you watch it, the more you appreciate little things inside the movie that you may not have you know, recognize it the first time around. So I had a great time watching it again. Now, what what little things do you feel like you can appreciate more now with this most current current viewing? 
Oh, well, you know, just from like being on set and and um, having access to doing some films here the last six, seven years, uh, you appreciate some things that were in the movies. And, you know, like uh, like his Cadillac with the uh, chandeliers on the front. I probably would have oh, thought the Duke that was New York's Cadillac. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I probably would have thought that was funny, you know, when I first saw it, but really didn't appreciate it. When I saw it again this time, I was like, yeah, man, that rocks, man. That's some cool shit. Just things like that, just little things, you know, um, the acting, um, just the storyline. The storyline is, to me, is uh, way before its time to be able to envision and picture some things like this um you know kind of thunderdome style but you know with with things that aren't out of the uh, aren't out of the question of of happening and it's you know shit like this could happen right this could be an alternate future you know this could be a few years down the road now granted this was 1981 uh posing as 1997 you know, <laughs> you could see them walling off a whole, uh, you know, island, so to speak, and just dumping all the criminals there. Because I kind of feel like we might not be that far, you know, in the way 2020 and 2021 has gone. It just feels like that, that's kind of the next step, you know. This is going to wall off a state or an island and just you know, house all the undesirables there. But it's not that far out of the realm of possibility. We need a snake pliskin. We really need one, right? And you know, and we've we've kind of joked around about it on uh, some different shows that uh, you know the whole pay per view thing is really big. Um, you know, I'm surprised that they haven't done. And there's been some movies out um, that have done some similar ideas like that. But you know, put paper or put cameras all over an island. And then food drop once a month and drop one weapon in and you got 30 or 40 people and it's survival of the fittest. And it's, you know, you, you have 24 hours a day, seven days a week cameras running and you sell it as a pay-per-view and people can tune in at any time of the day and watch what's happening on this island. That kind of sounds like, oh, what was that Stone Cold movie? Uh, or they did that on an island. I can't remember the name of it. It was yeah, a Stone Cold Steve Austin movie, but I'm drawing a blank right now. The Condemned, wasn't that it? <laughs> yeah, it's and I like I said, I know that they've done something like this before, but I, again, I, you know, there's there could this this isn't out of the realm of possibility for something like this to happen. No, no, it's not. This could this their future could definitely be our future without a doubt. And let's get into like the, the amazing cast though that this film has. I mean, Kurt Russell was not the legend that he is. Now, this movie, if anything, cemented him in becoming a legend with the Snake Plissken character. And like we were talking a little bit off the air, the coolest name in, in, in movie history, am I right? Snake Plissken, is that not the coolest name in movie history? Dude, I'm going to tell you, if it wasn't Jason Arthur, I'd be Snake Plissken. <laughs> that is an awesome ass name. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's just one of those, it's one of those names and... and you had mentioned how they how they got it. I, that to me is it makes the whole character. That makes you know it could be Bob Jones. Well, Snake Plissken is that's that just screams badass right. with that name. There's so no, 
no kind of question of what kind of character he is with a name like Snake Plissken. No, no, that's that you're gonna you're gonna get exactly what you what what he did here in this film. He played an awesome Snake Plissken, that's for sure. And to think, you know, he really he was a Disney kid before this. He had done, you know, uh, Used Cars was the last movie that came out, which I love. Used Cars was the last movie that came out bef- that he did right before this one. And he had done a ton of TV work, a bunch of uh, TV movies, and a bunch of Disney stuff. And it was a hard sell to get them uh, for the company, you know, for the execs to allow John Carpenter to cast him. Because John Carpenter directed him a year or two previous in the Elvis TV movie that they did. And they had such a good, good working relationship, you know, that's how he was like, I'm pushing for it. They wanted... Somebody older, they wanted like uh, Nick Nolte. They wanted, uh, I know, uh, Clint, not Clint Eastwood, um, sorry, Charles Bronson was considered for the part, Tommy Lee Jones. And he's all like, no, 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 we're pushing for Kurt. He won out and uh, John Carpenter got him. And to think, I mean, the rest of this cast that we have, I'm going to read off just a few of the names. Uh, we got Lee Van Cleef as Hauk. Ernest Borgnine, Borgnine as Cabby, Donald Pleasance, the legendary fucking Donald Pleasance, Sam Loomis. Uh, Leon Isaac Hayes is a Duke of New York. We got Harry Dean Stanton, Adrian Barbeau, Tom yes. fucking Atkins. If you don't know who Tom fucking Atkins is and Adrian Barbeau is, I, I suggest you stop this podcast right now in your tracks. <laughs> right. Go watch a few of the movies and then come back because we're going to ruin this for you. Uh, you but know, a great, great cast. And that was another thing you had asked me earlier about what I appreciated more now than the first time that I watched it. And that's this is one of the big things, the cast. You know, I, when I had first seen it, I really didn't pay too much attention. But then, you know, just all the names you just had. I, Ernest Bordnine is cabby. What a great role, man. What a great role. And what a fantastic and Lee Van actor. Cleef. Exactly. Lee Van Cleef, you know, my God, he was, you know, he just came off of surgery before doing this movie, and he was still killing it. Yeah, and then, you know, and I mean, it's just everybody is. And then my my favorite, I mean, Adrian Barbeau. Who doesn't like Adrian Barbeau? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I remember I, I met her. If you her don't, then, there's something wrong with you. Oh, my God. I met her at Scarefest a few years ago for the first time. Oh, Lord. That was uh, that was something else. That was a that was a childhood dream. That was a childhood dream there, <laughs> to meet her and and such yeah. a nice lady, such a super nice lady. Um, oh, she's a sweetheart. She is so uh, genuinely appreciative of her fans as well. You know. Yeah, I think when and I met her, she the... was she was still doing um, General Hospital, I believe. She was still doing General Hospital when I met her at Scarefest. So I think when I when I met her, the guy ahead of me had uh, asked her about being on the Drew Carey show, and it, that's totally made me rethink some shit because I was just like, oh yeah, that was her playing the mom on Drew Carey. Like I had yeah. totally forgotten about that. She'd been been all over the place, and then uh, I would just watch uh, Cannonball Run with her here uh, recently, and I totally forgot that she was in that after having I haven't watched it in probably a decade. Oh yeah, she's great. Harry Dean Stanton's great. Everybody in this movie is really well cast. 
And speaking of that, you know, it's a legendary cast. And think about what how different it could have been if Tommy Lee Jones or Charles Bronson had played Snake. It probably still would have been good, but I just feel like Kurt Russell owns it. He's, like and I that, said, when, when you say Snake Plissken, that's it. That's him. Right. I don't know. Charles Bronson might have been able to pull it off, but I don't. He was doing that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's to to give Kurt Russell the chance to to develop this character the way that they did was was definitely a good call for sure right and something else that's iconic is when we get the, just that you know white credits on the black background very simple for back in the day but that iconic theme music you know i think people it's just like the halloween theme song which of course is another you know carpenter film i think you know people it's become synonymous that song it's like people know like oh that's the snake Plissken theme right exactly let's get in actually to get into the meat and potatoes of the film here you know uh, i think the, the line of dialogue i wrote down when they're doing the little intro i love when they when they kind of show the little computer graphics showing you know like Telling you what happened, that crime rose 400%, you know, in 88 and, you know, uh, caused everybody, you know, the, 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 the crime rising, you know, had, they had to wall in Manhattan Island and the rules are, the rules are very simple. Once you go in, you don't come out. And the computer voice actually is, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm full of uh, useless movie knowledge. But the computer voice is an uncredited uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Is it really? Yes. Uh, there's a couple of different computer voices. Uh, Deborah Hill, the producer and one of uh, John Carpenter's longtime co- collaborators, did some of the voices, and Jamie Lee Curtis did the rest. Really? And I didn't know that. But there's also something at the beginning here. It was only made available... Well, now, what I believe was on the one of the special edition laser discs back in the day, and a special edition uh, VHS. Now, I'm pretty sure it's probably been re-released on some sort of Blu-ray or DVD. But there was a cut scene where they actually show the uh, them robbing uh, Snake Plissken and his buddy robbing the Federal Reserve, and them getting caught. His buddy gets shot. Snake gets caught trying to ride the train, uh, jump a like a bullet train to get out, and they actually did shoot this and did have it as a cut scene, but they cut it out of the film. But you actually can, you know, witness. I, I think you can even watch it on YouTube if you haven't seen it. But you can actually see how Snake Plissken ended up at uh, you know the Manhattan Island prison. Which, gotcha. if you haven't seen that scene, it's some it's very interesting because. You kind of feel like this has happened to Snake once once or twice before because this is the way he reacts. And, of course, when he meets up with uh, Brain later on, you kind of get the idea that he has been left holding the bag at least more than <laughs> more than several times. Exactly. Yeah. But, I, uh, when I saw the – when I just watched it here, um, that scene wasn't in there. Yeah, so – I not quite sure why they would have cut that out because it, it actually shows why why he's there in the first place. But maybe time, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I remember reading something that test audiences, a test audience did not like the scene or felt the scene was confusing. Gotcha. I don't agree with that sentiment, but it, 
I guess, you know, I mean, if the, the majority audience says otherwise, who might argue? Right. But, uh, I mean, they pretty much get, start right off into the action. You see a, a helic helicopters flying over Manhattan Island. A couple of guys, a couple of inmates are trying to get across the, the river on a raft. They blow them out of the water. So you instantly know what kind of shit you're in for with this movie. You know, what kind of, uh, these people don't mess around. And speaking of not messing around, uh, we get uh, Lee Van Cleef playing Bob Houck, which who was actually an inspiration for a character I wrote in my film Postmortem America, Ray Houck. So I had Larry Laverty play, and I kind of modeled him after Lee Van Cleef's character in this film uh, quite a bit. But he is the police commissioner in charge of the prison, and they you know, they get a uh, distress signal sent out, which they don't know it at the time, but it's Air Force One. Air Force One has been taken over by terrorists, and they're going to crash the plane into Manhattan Island. But the president, played by uh, Donald Pleasance, just once again, again, phenomenal acting. Donald Pleasance is always, you know, kind of performance guaranteed. But he escapes in a pod that basically looks like... Like, I'm not trying to knock the effects because these effects are really, really good for, like, 1981. I, I think they're especially good. Right. Uh, but the the pod looks like a great big everlasting gobstopper with, you know, like from Willy Wonka, like a big everlasting gobstopper with, like, the presidential seal on it. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking Mork. Kind of, kind of one of those things, too. It's when I... Oh, Mork for Mork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when it's it's sitting inside, like, the the building and it just like mm -hmm. you said it looks like one of them gobstoppers i was like okay I... but you like I, I you just... said from from the 80s that's fantastic you know that's well all the co computer generated uh, imagery that they did where you know the the point of view of the plane when it crashes or even when they uh send pliskin into you know the the prison on a glider, all that was done with real life models that they use with like, uh, that James Cameron, you know, who directed the Terminator, uh, Titanic, the abyss. Uh, unfortunately he'd also directed avatar. I won't hold that against him, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was some of his early effects work. I mean, this was also, you know, several years before he directed the Terminator. So it's got, you know, there's this funny. And like, that was something I didn't realize until probably eight, nine years ago, when I was really you know, like combing through the the credits, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if this is the same James Cameron. And sure enough, that is. He created a lot of the models and did a lot of the visual effects work for this movie. Nice. But uh, but you know, uh, I also think it's worth worth noting that this is the first movie that was ever granted permission to shoot on Liberty Island, where you know the Statue of Liberty is. So that says something. That right. They were able to get permission. To, they only shot like two shots, I think, there or two scenes. Everything else was shot in Los Angeles or St. Louis. So it was not really even 99% of it was not even shot in New York. It was just funny. Just part of movie magic, you know. They do a lot of really cool things, that's for sure. There's uh, If you dig into movies in general, you'll, you'll find that what you see on, what you see on the... Uh, on the big screen isn't isn't always what it appears to be no most of the time it is not and uh, i love the guy that they run into now this is 
a great character actor, Frank Doubleday, who was also in Assault on Precinct uh, 13, directed by John Carpenter. He plays a character named Romero, which there are a couple of different names in here. There's a Romero. There's also a Cronenberg. So there's some uh, horror movie royalty, sort of, so to speak, being uh, kind of poked and jabbed at there that I like. But when Frank Doubleday shows up, you know, Hauk and his helicopter team goes in to find out, you know, what happened to the president. His escape pod has, has launched. So they go and the escape pod's empty. The president is gone. He already kind of looks like a, a punk rocker that has been zombified. He looks like on wheels, man. Right, right. <laughs> and I love when he walks up and he just stares at him. He goes, you, you touch me, he dies. You're not up in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. You, you know, you don't do this, he dies. And he just hold up, pulls out that little rag, and he's got the president's finger with his ring finger on it. it. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, and he just starts counting down. I love the countdown. It's so eerie because Lee Van Cleef is like, you know, hey, I'm ready to talk. I want to negotiate. And he's just like 19, 18, 17. And he just tries to interrupt them, and he just keeps counting. He's like, whoop, whoop, got to go. And then yeah, and that really... Was, and that was eerie as hell to, to watch because that sets the tone for... This is no nonsense, man. They these these guys have have obviously uh, captured the president, and they're not they're not uh, they're not playing around. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're not playing at all. And then we get our first real scene with Snake. You know, we see him getting. We don't really know who he is at first. He's just being uh, you know dropped off at the prison. You just think he's another. Uh, you know, another prisoner. And I love that they're walking around as you hear the voice talking. You're like, you you know, if you don't want to go to the prison, you can opt to be, uh, you know, opt to be euthanized instead. I was just like, it makes me wonder what's the, what's the ratio of people that decide they don't even want to go into Manhattan Island prison and how many people are just like, yeah, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll just take uh, being euthanized right now. Right. We get our first real scene with uh, Snake. He has his sit down meeting with Hauk. And it has some of the best lines, and he's like, you know, he's like the, you know, a plane went down inside maximum the maximum security p- prison, and the president was on board, and he was just like, he just, I love the line, president of what? It's just so simple. His, just, you know, exactly what kind of character you're dealing with, a guy that does not does not give a fuck. No. And he literally says that at one point. He's like, you know, we're still at war, Pliskin, and he's like, I don't give a fuck about your war, or your president. And he, he's still having that banter, you know. He's telling him, he's like, you know, I'll give you a pardon for every criminal act that you've committed in the United States if you just go in, bring the president out in 24 hours. And he's like, I'll tell you what you do. Get a new president. <laughs> and yeah, he's he, dev- he definitely didn't give a shit. No, he did not give a shit. So, and, you know, then, of course, you know, Snake's like, hey, I guess I'm going in one way or another. And we get our... That one line he has that is just a badass line when he's just, I can't say it like Snake does because it's, Kurt Russell basically does his best Clint Eastwood impersonation here. You know, he's, call me Snake. And I'm I'm not even trying to mimic it because I am not that cool. I'm not even to shred that cool. <laughs> yeah, he's, like it, like we said in the very beginning, the, the name, the name definitely rides it out, man. When you, when you think Snake Plissken, you, that's exactly who you got. And he's a badass, man. Yeah, and this is the beginning of a new kind of career for him. I mean, at least a new direction for his career of being a, you know, from being a Disney kid. 
But exactly. you know, they they don't exactly do Snake right. You know, they they give him his weapons. They, there's a, the whole obligatory scene that I think would be mimicked once again, like in many many eighties movies, where you got you know I call them the loading up scene. With like, here's all your weapons. You got guns. You got throwing stars. You got your your. your it's kind of like your James Bond type moment. They have all these little weapons for him that he little. Uh, you know, gizmos and stuff that he can use that, you know, some stuff we've seen and some stuff we've never seen before, which is the beauty of this being kind of a more of a sci-fi action film than just a regular, you know, straight up action film. I love the little doohickeys and gizmos that they give him. Exactly. But, uh, you know, then they say, hey, we got to get you inoculated. We got to get you, you know, get you inoculated before you go on the island. And what do they do? They Cronenberg again. Never trust a guy named Cronenberg. Uh, <laughs> he gives him a shot in the neck of basically, and Lee Van Cleef tells him he's like, "Well, I love the fact that I don't think I, I want to get your opinion on this." You know, the guy who injects these uh, little micro-sized bombs into Snake Plissken's neck when he turned around and he was like, "Well, tell them," and. How you know Lee Van Cleef looks at him? He looks at him like I, I don't think they ever had any intention of telling Snake if Cronenberg hadn't opened his mouth up. I was just wondering what you thought about. It. You think they would ever have told Snake if he hadn't slipped? You know, I I think that they probably would have, um, just going with the scene, but um, I don't think that they wanted to tell him that quick. Maybe maybe as he was flying over, you know. Because he's still in, yeah, he's yeah. still with he's still within reach of of these people, and now you've just uh, you've put two explosives in his neck. You know now what is he going to do? He can reach out and kill all of us. So I I I get the I get the feeling that they were going to tell him. I just think it was going to be as he was in that glider heading over that oh hey by the way, we put explosives in your neck and you have twenty two hours. Yep, I thought what a. Uh... What a hell of a, a cruel way to get somebody to do what you want them to do. It's like, hey, we're going to put these bombs in your neck. If you're not back in 22 hours, they're going to pop, blow both the arteries, and you're going to bleed out like a stuck pig. But Right. And, you know, and, again, had- and again, from when this movie was made to come up with that idea, you know, I, that's another one that's well before its time, I, I, I believe. I don't. You know, un- unless our our government or whatever's been doing that shit for a while, which they could have, um, you know, to come up with something like that to put explosives in your carotid arteries, I don't. That's that's some pretty yeah, ingenious we, shit. And if they have, if they haven't, there probably probably ought to be some laws against that or something. Right, you, sure. you would think, right? But I just love how they're they're sending them in in a glider, not a helicopter, not a boat, not on a motorcycle, nothing cool, just a glider. It's like, you know, and that's how he gets the job, essentially. That's what Hauk tells him. He's like, well, you flew a gold flyer over Leningrad in Siberia. He's like, you know, you're the best thing I've got. So that's how he got the job. You know, he knows how to get into somewhere quiet, right. you know. And uh, so they land. They have the, la- the land him on the, the World Trade Center. So he can do a free fall takeoff. But we're going to find out later on that that's a lot, lot easier than it sounds. Because the president has a time limit on him. The, he only gives him, first he tells him 24 hours, but then when he sends him off, when Lee Van Cleef sends him off, he gives him 22 hours because the Hartford Summit meeting will be over. And that's like the president's last ditch 
effort to try to keep them out of war is to make it to this Hartford summit meeting. And, uh, you know, he, he land, he lands, albeit almost like crash lands. And like really the first spot he, he goes to, you know, once he gets out of the world trade center is where he encounters cabbie, uh, our legendary Ernest Borgnine. And this is the first time we really get, the one-liner that everybody will remember from this movie is, oh, you're Snake Plissken? I thought you were dead. <laughs> right. Everybody thinks which, he's dead. Which is said a hundred times in this film. <laughs> right, right. And it's funny, everybody that tells him that, everybody that says, oh, I thought you were dead or I heard you were dead, ends up dying in the movie. Every single person that utters that line to him dies. So, good. Yeah, good call. You know, don't say that to Snake. Maybe you'll make it. I don't know. But then we get a, a, a bit of B-movie royalty after we meet up with uh, a cabbie with, you know, Ernest Borgnine. And he does the whole, thought you were dead. And that funny musical number. Let's talk about that. Did you <laughs> know that John Carpenter actually plays uh, the one of the uh, musicians in that scene where they're like, they're kind of doing the, the stage show that John Carpenter is actually playing with like, I think the violinist or something and the writer, Nick Castle, who also played the, you know, the shape who played uh, Michael Myers and Halloween is actually in that scene, but just little tidbit. I, I didn't, I didn't know that, but to be quite honest with you, that scene um, stuck out with me because it was almost like uh, it was real eerie uh, when he's walking in and you have all that, that stuff going on in the background. It just, to me, it was like kind of weird shit is going on here. Like it was just eerie to see it. Well, yeah. And it was weird to find that, you know, the prisoners had still, you know, some form of entertainment, you right. know, like, albeit very strange entertainment, you know, but they had a, the means to try to entertain themselves. But everybody in that audience did not look like they were having a good time. The only person who looked like he was having a good time was Cabby. Yeah. He was just ha having a fucking great, great old fucking time. But then we get some B-movie royalty. I'm not sure if you, if you know this character, but the guy when, because uh, Pliskin is using his... Uh, his tracer to find the president. He's got it, you know, a tracker bracelet on. Right. Well, he goes down when he goes down into the, the belly of that, that building underneath where they're having the little musical review is George Buck flowers, who was also in, they live. He was in uh, Wishmaster, among other things, uh, drive in maskers, slave girls from, or uh, not slave girls from beyond infinity. What am I thinking here? Um, uh, Sorty Babes and Slimeball Bullarama. He's the type of guy that's been in a hundred and twenty different, you know, B movies. But <laughs> I think it's funny. Like as Snake's walking into the pl place, there's people like being cannibalized on. There's people being, you know, sexually assaulted. There's there's another guy that tries to, you know, uh, knock him upside the head for his gun, and he's just calmly kind of just strutting in the place like the badass he is. And you know, he calls the he, you know, he calls Hawk over this, you know, his, his radio. And he's like, listen, the president's dead. <laughs> and says, somebody's had him for dinner. You know? Right. And he just tells him, like, you know, yeah, well, the president's dead. You still got 18 hours to get that tape, you know, because the, the, the 
president has a briefcase. We haven't mentioned this. The president has a briefcase with a tape that has to reach the Hartford Summit meeting. And he's like, well, you know, no more Hartford Summit meeting, no more snake whisket. Yeah. That, they, and that whole, when you're talking about um, when he's walking through, just those quick glances in the rooms where all that different stuff is going on, again, plays into when he first walked in there. It's just kind of a, uh, kind of like an eerie horror type setting to where it's like man this is just some dark shit happening in this in this place but it's you know it's it's full of people that are doing life so you know it's just it, it kept that going um and i didn't remember that at all when i from when i had first watched it so again these things that i had uh, when i watched it again this kind of stuck out of my head is like man this is just some really eerie off the wall shit to be thinking of to to have in a film in a in a film it's it's very dark yeah it was yeah, it was a very very sure. dark film first time well the next scene that that's, gets really dark as well is when he you know i love the scene where snake is kind of at an impasse he doesn't know what to do so he literally pulls up a chair in the middle of the street fires are raging you know everywhere i mean this uh, it just looks like a wasteland. But he takes the time, even though he's pressed for time to try to get the president back, he just has to take a moment and sit and rest. He just wants to take a second and catch his breath. Then all the cra- the the group they called the crazies that he's already been warned about when um, Tom Atkins' character, Remy, kind of has given him the lowdown of what to expect when he gets into Manhattan Island. And he's like, the crazies, you know, are, are completely underground. Well, he, you know, all these people start coming, all the crazies start coming up out of the uh, the sewage system, you know, and out of the streets. He runs into, and I made a note of this, a chock full of nuts place. Now, I'm not sure if in 1980, 81, if there was really a string of restaurants or diners or specialty shops called chock full of nuts. But if there's not, there's, there should have been, because that is just a brilliant freaking name for a store. I don't exactly. know if it was real or not. Exactly. Well, and and you've got and you've got a bunch of nuts running around the street. So, I mean, it, it goes <laughs> it goes hand in hand. Yes, it but, does. Yeah, when they started coming through the floors and coming all over the place, I'm like, oh my god! Again, dark, dark film. Yes, and then the poor girl that he sees, she says to him, you know, she's he's like, hey, you got to keep it down in here, you know. Put, she lights a cigarette. He puts. She tells her to put her hand over it. You know, just to keep quiet. She doesn't listen, even though she's, you know, been there for a while. Unlike him, he has at least the the foresight to try to keep quiet. But it doesn't save her because she says to him, "What does she say to him? I heard you were dead." So yep. seals her fate. I think that's like a, a thing we ought to make like a, a drinking game for every time a character says, "Oh, you're Snake Plissken. I heard you were dead," and then they die. We take a shot. Exactly. You'd be, you Better get a be bottle. Well lit. <laughs> yeah, you'd be well lit by the end of this movie. Absolutely. But then Cabby pops up again, and Cabby, Cab- you know, Cabby always pops up. Fuck. Yeah, that's the one thing of this ongoing thing in this movie that I, I, I don't get the timing of it. Cabby just pops up at always the right time. It always seems like he pops up to. You know, warn Snake. He pops up to save Snake. He pops up with his card later on, once again, to save the whole group. Cabby is just there. 
as a plot device to move the, the, the movie along, really. Right. You know, and it's not a detriment to the film, but like as a writer and as a filmmaker myself, I just kind of noticed that it's like, especially the more and more I watch it, it's just like, oh, yeah, Cabby is there just to keep the plot moving forward. Well, and, and he was, and it, in the, the first time they meet, he was so excited and so, I don't know if infatuated is the word I'm looking for, but just the chance to, to meet Snake Plissken, he was like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is like a dream come true kind of thing. So right, I think right. that also plays into why he's always popping up at the right times or always able to give him just that little advice to keep him going. So... I thought it. I I thought it was um, phenomenal the way that they um, wrote his character. Yeah, it's a great character. And speaking of great characters, we're we're getting ready to get into two of them here real soon. Uh, you know, because Cabby, you know, helps Snake get away from the crazy. He's uh, he tosses out a Molotov cocktail. I love how he's like this stuff's like gold around here, but he uses it. That that's his weapon. Because if you notice, like on the floorboard of his car, he had a whole like cachet of fucking <laughs> of Molotov cocktails. Yeah, it's like for exactly. stuff that was worth so much, he didn't have a gun, he didn't have a knife, he had Molotov cocktails. But you know, hey, whatever works for you, right? Right, exactly. But he take he's. You know, he uh, Snake finally just pulls his gun on him and tells him, hey, he's like, I'm going to ask you something. He's like, where's the president? And Cabby gives it up right away. And that's when we learn about our, our you know, antagonist of the film, the Duke of New York, the A number one guy. Uh, the Duke of New York has the president, and he's going to use him as leverage to get everybody out of the prison. He's, like, he's going to exchange the, pre- the president for a pardon for everybody, which is... Not good, because you realize, you know, you're one man trying to find this guy, but you're also one man fighting an entire, now you're fighting the entire island full of bad guys. But he takes him, he takes, uh, Cabby takes Snake to meet a guy named Brain. And that's when we, uh, Brain is a guy that, like, makes gas for the the Duke of New York. He figures out things for him. He's just a, a smart fella. But then we get in, introduced to uh, the lovely Adrian Barbeau as Maggie, who says, mm-hmm. Cabby says it's just brain squeeze. The Duke gave him, uh, gave uh, Maggie to brain to make him happy. And, you know, that, I, I, I can see his reasoning there. I can see his I, reasoning there. If, if, I was, if I was locked up for life and you were going to give me something to keep me happy, I would be perfectly happy with that gift. Yes, yes I would. I would, too. Very much so. But even she says this, we know it's going to seal her fate for later on. We're not ruining anything or we're spoiling (laughs) everything here for you. What does she say to him, Jason? Well, I thought you were dead. (laughs) Uh, If they say, you know, I think I would love to go back and watch this movie again. I've I've seen it dozens and dozens of times, but I, I would love to actually just watch it with the sole purpose of just writing down how many times they say that in the movie. I bet you it's an the, even 10, at least. Doing the count? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I, you said it earlier. Everybody that everybody that meets him is like, oh, my God, you're Snake Plissken? I thought you were dead. Well, yeah. you will be soon. Yeah, yeah, you will be soon. Thank <laughs> you for mentioning that. It's part of my curse. That's right. People, people recognize me, and then they die. But uh, I, I love the fact 
that what this is the part that I think this is the character I think is really brilliantly written besides Cabby is Brain, aka Harold Hellman. Because when Snake sees him, he just like he's like, Hey, you know, little Cabby brings him in, he's like, Brain, I brought somebody to see you. And he just stands up and goes, Snake, and then and then Snake is just like Harold Hellman. And Maggie, uh, you know, Adrian Barbeau's character is so taken aback by she's just like Harold <laughs> you know like right. you know him and then you find out like they it's it's just brilliant writing you know what I mean of, of the the past that they had you know he tells them this a little story he's like you know I can't remember he says like six years ago or eight years ago he's like you walked out of me left me in Kansas City he's like you remember what they did to Fresno Bob you remember Bob you remember what they did to him and he's just like man you were late He's like, we were buddies, Harold. And you just know at that point, if if Snake wasn't worried about saving his own neck, literally, that this man would be dead. Right. No no issues whatsoever. Well, and it and it also gives gives his character that um uh, just that weaselly that weaselly little fuck kind of character that you that now you're looking at him going, Oh, he's that dude. He's that kind of guy. Right. He's the guy that would just run out on his best buddy and leave them to die and just bl- and blame them for it later. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, great character actor, Harry, Harry Dean Stanton. I mean, gosh, he had just come off of uh, doing um, a year or two before he was in Alien. And, you know, not to mention a, a thousand other movies that I can't even think of right now because I've, my brain's blanked. You know, he passed away, I think... Oh, geez, it was just a couple of years ago. It wasn't too long ago, like four or five years ago. He was 91, so, you know, he he lived a, a nice long life. But uh, I mostly remember him from Alien and Repo Man, another good movie. Or Christine, which is another, and that's what I appreciate, I guess, with John Carpenter. You know, he would use the same kind of cavalcade of actors. He would find a, a niche group of people that he liked and he would just continue to work with them over and over again. And I kind of miss that in Hollywood, you know, like, you know, the, the Bobby De Niro, Martin Scorsese kind of things, you know, that, that when, you know, they would just link up and just continue to keep working together like that. I I just appreciate that kind of camaraderie. It's kind of like we have with the lost bastards crew, you know, and then like, you know, we keep coming back because we want to. Exactly. Yeah. That's a, and you 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 mentioned that it's uh what a good group of people, so much fun, great camaraderie, um, and everybody's you know everybody works well together. There's never yeah. a problem. It's uh, it's a great group. I'm I'm uh, I'm honored to be a part of that. I I have a great time with you guys. It's a lot of fun. This uh, episode will probably go live while the two of us, your host and co-host here are going to be in Florida shooting a movie called Cruel Summer. But little plug there, shameless plug. We will also plug it once more at the end of the show. But yes, uh, back back to where back to the film before we digress even further. Snake gets everybody on his side. He manages to convince them, even though Brain Harold Hellman does not believe a thing coming out of his mouth. He manages to convince Cabby, Maggie, and Brain to go with him, take him to where the president is being held. And what happens, they, they leave, they barely get up and around the corner, the Duke shows up, and we get that first shot. And I'll let you take this. I'll let you take this scene because I know you love this Cadillac that the Duke has so much. What about this Cadillac? I'm telling you what. 
that is that is classic. That is so over the top, like Mad Max kind of shit. Um, when you have chandeliers uh, up by the front headlights, your Cadillac, you know you're the Duke. You know you're an important some bitch if you've got chandeliers on the front of your Cadillac, man. And that, when he pulled up in that, I was I, my mouth was like, "Are you kidding me?" I'd for, again forgotten completely about it, and I'm like, "That is just." That is so over the top. It's, it's, it's awesome, absolutely awesome. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great gimmick. I love that car. Like even on the, it has the hydraulics because when it pulls up and they park, it just kind of, yep. it lowers <laughs> down. It was just like you know, nobody else. You know, like uh, how the old George Carlin saying go. You know, people are digging in a dumpster to gnaw in a peach pit, but meanwhile, this guy has a Cadillac with hydraulic lifts and chandeliers dangling off the front headlights you know because <laughs> he's because that's the duke man that's an important that's an important dude that's yeah, i, he's I just duke I, of new york i thought that was classic man i whoever came up with that needs to needs a pat on the back because that was just to and, and that's my other thing when i watch movies i always try to figure out when 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 you're writing this or when you're doing this does somebody go you know what we need we need chandeliers coming off the front of this Cadillac. Well, that's a brilliant idea. I mean, I, I, just, I just think it's great how they come up with off-the-wall weird shit and they put it on there. And it just becomes so much better than, you know, what's written down on paper. Yeah, it makes me wonder, like, how it went from the written page. You know, how much of that was already in the script on the written page and how much was come up with during production when they're like, you know what, when the... Duke shows up with his entourage. He needs to have chandeliers dangling off the front of his Cadillac. Right. We need to pimp this ride out. What do we do? Let's put (laughs) chandeliers on it. (laughs) And hydraulics. That'll be it. Nothing will say badass better than that. This is great. And let's talk a little bit about the Duke. We got Leon Isaac Hayes. Amazing actor. Very accomplished musician. Theme song from Shaft. He was in Truck Turner. He was I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka. Even did South Park in his later years. You know, he was, yep. he was a very much a Renaissance man. He he plays such a, a man of very few words, but he has such an amazing presence. You know, he's got that regal looking jacket, his ripped out jeans, that that cowboy hat, and Leon Isaac Hayes has just got an amazing presence. He, he doesn't say much, but he doesn't really have to. Right, and uh, again, great writing with the character and the casting because he he has that. Um, ability just to walk in and you're like, oh shit! Like you said, he doesn't have to say much of anything. It's just, oh, this—he's a bad dude. That's a bad dude, and he demands respect. And he, you know, he gets it. He gets it on the uh, on the on this film for sure. And he had only done a, a handful of movies before this. I know he had done Tough Guys, Truck Turner, and a couple of other things, but I'm drawing a blank here. This is one of the the first, you know, of handful of films that he had, he had done, and he he owns it. He just owns that fucking character, and as he says many times, you know, or not many times, but a couple times in the film, you know, like when he, uh, you know, he tells people, "I'm the Duke of New York. I made number one. That's who I am." You don't need to know much more than that about him. No, nope. you know, uh, now a lot of people, now not a lot of people, but you know, the camps are kind of split on this. Where I've heard some people saying. 
where there's not enough fleshing of the characters in this movie, of the people that don't like it. You know, they you don't find out about much about Snake's past other than some few things in passing. You don't, you know, necessarily find out, like, for instance, how did Cabby get there? You know, was Cabby always there? Or did he do something? You don't find out about the president and his agenda. You don't find out about what the Duke had done. But the thing is, you you, you already know, I, I, I'm on the other side of the camp. I don't want to know. I feel like the mystery is there and it serves its purpose of, it leaves you to guess what their past is. And, you know, most of the time I will always say a movie needs an extra 10 or 15 minutes in it to explain some things sometimes. But with this movie, I feel like it's perfectly paced and the story is perfectly done where we don't need to like, you know, would it, you know, would it help the story along anymore to find out what Maggie had done to get thrown into the prison or what Cabby had done to get thrown into the prison? I don't think it re- you really need to know. It, I don't think it would have added anything that needed to be added to the film. I, I am a hundred percent in agreement with you where I think, um, I'll compare it to like, um, like a horror movie. You don't necessarily need to see the chainsaw cutting the person's head off or slicing them down the middle. Sometimes just hearing the chainsaw and a scream and going to the next is a whole lot more profound because then you have to, in your mind, you're depicting what happened without seeing it. And I think that's what this does. You, you form your own opinion or your own reasons as to why Cabby's there, why Maggie's there. And I don't think, I think you'd, to me, I think you would take away from the story of what we're really trying to do by trying to tell individual stories about people that you meet. I don't, I, I think that it was right. well written, like you said, and I don't, I don't think you really need to know why Cabby's there. I mean, what, what purpose does that, it's, it's not going to make or break this film. Yeah, it would slow down the pacing of it, I think, if you delved too much into that. Like, you know, what crime did the Duke commit to get in there? Well, probably all the crimes, you know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, uh, the, the story well, is, you know, Snake's racing against the clock to get the president out of there within 22 hours, and that's all you need to know. Well, and that's the thing. you When you do movies like this with a timeline, you can't take hours to to fill in different blanks when you only have a few hours to get the job done. This movie is like we said is dark, but it's also fast-paced. From the from the Very time fast-paced. from the time he hits the top of that trade center till the end, I mean, it's it's moving. Shit's happening. It's so I think you this like you said, I think you would take away from the film had you slowed it down and and told everybody's individual stories i i don't think i think that would have kind of ruined it yeah exactly you know they could always tie all that stuff in with the movie novelization you can get all the backstory that you possibly want but uh, what do we get next Uh, the next big scene is where uh, snake brain and maggie try to bust the president out uh you know brain gets snake he does get snake back to the president before the duke gets there but, you know, I guess you could just say things don't go their way. 
you know, I mean, Snake gets on the train. The, they have an, an old train station where they that the president held up one of the train cars. And really, you know, it's the president that gets Snake shot, you know, because this president is this kind of looking up, you know, there's a guy being cho- that Snake is choking out in the background when he first gets into the train car, right? And the president eyeballs him and kind of gives him a wave. It wouldn't have been for the president gawking. You know, Donald Pleasance had just cut his head down. Uh, Snake wouldn't have got shot in the leg with a crossbow crossbow bolt. Right. But I, I love the, the like, He's like, are you from, like, he's just frantic, though. He's like, are you from the outside? He's like, yeah. He's like, they sent me in. We got to get you out of here. He's like, I need you to move fast. And then just, I love when Donald Pleasance like, you're goddamn right. I'll move fast. You know, he's like, shh. Right, exactly. <laughs> away yeah, because yeah, you're surrounded by... Uh, the whole entourage. He was kind of goofy there for a minute, but uh, then but, you know what what happens. What happens next goes right into hand in hand of of what I was saying earlier about about the jackass. But yeah, yeah, brain just kind of just kind of leaves Snake hanging. You know, it's Snake gets captured. You know, and of course the Duke of New York. What does he do? What does he do again? He's like, oh, you're Snake Plissken. I've heard of you. I heard you were dead, thus sealing the Duke's fate eventually. Again, you know, for first-time viewers, they may not know this yet, but, you know, you know that that bad things are going to happen, you know, when Snake and and the Duke finally do get, kind of go head-to-head. But they knock the Snake out, they take him captive, and fucking, yeah, the jackass fucking uh, (laughs) uh, brain just leaves him hanging. Because, you know, the Duke is just like, is that friends of yours, Brain? He's like, oh, but he had a gun on me, Duke. There was absolutely nothing I could do. And it's like, you sniveling little bastard. Exactly. Yeah, he's he's that little, he's that shitty little person, man, that you're just, and when you're watching the film, you're like, oh, you little dick. <laughs> and But, and like I said, they they cast him like that from the very beginning when you meet him. You know, he left him hanging, he... he you know, turned his back, and then it, then again, you're like, oh well, maybe he's changed. Maybe he is trying to to help Snake until Snake gets caught. Then it's like, oh no, he he did this and this to me, and I'm like, dirty little bastard, you. You really hate yeah. him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you. That's why I, I I have a note for later on when uh, they start going down the 69th Street Bridge. I'll get to that when uh, that that kind of delves into everything you just said. This is where we get to the point where Charles Cyphers, who plays the Secretary of State, he was also, he played Sheriff Brackett in Halloween. He played a police officer in Assault on Precinct 13. So once again, you know, John Carpenter alumni, um, he's arguing with Hauk that they need to like formulate a different plan. And he's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take over this whole operation from you, Hauk. And he's like, I override all your authority here. He's like, oh yeah, just try it. And I love Lee Van Cleef, you know, he's just such a a stoic kind of character. He, he's, he's once again, you know, he's acting like he's in a Western, and this is kind of like a sci-fi Western, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, but coming up <clears throat> is one of my favorite scenes. We're getting towards the end of the movie. We're getting towards the last, you know, the, the, the act three, the final act of the film, where they're supposed to be in Madison Square Garden, I believe. And this is where it really kind of gets into almost a, 
a, a road warrior Mad Max kind of territory because they got a big wrestling ring set up with barbed wire, fl- torches on fire at every turnbuckle, and they're putting Snake into uh, you know into a, a fight to the death with a guy named Slag, uh, <coughs> and he's just a scary looking guy. He's played by a, a wrestler named Ox Baker, who was just a career wrestler. He had, he passed away a few, uh, many years ago. He was uh, 80, uh, 80 years old. But he was just such a towering physical specimen. He makes, like, Kurt Russell look like a baby. Yeah, he was a big dude. Big dude. And apparently he had uh, was beating the ever-loving hell out of Kurt Russell while they were filming this. He was really like pounding Kurt Russell into that mat was beating the hell out of him. And Kurt Russell had to keep telling him like, Hey man, you know, this isn't like your day job. This isn't like pro wrestling. You know, you just got to take it easy. And he kept trying to tell him to take it easy. And so the story goes is that, uh, I'd actually had heard this from an interview with, uh, John Carpenter and on an audio commentary that Kurt went up in the lightly, I guess you could say tapped ox in the balls to let him know that he was serious about him letting up. And then from then on out, Ox Baker was like, okay, I'm, I'm cool. I'll, I'll, I'll let up on you. But yeah, he had, he, he had to bag, he had to bag tag him in order to get him to, to, to let up on, on beating the shit out of him. Cause let's face it. If this had been in real life, like Ox Baker would have this beat for a little Kurt Russell. Like, and I love Kurt Russell. He's my boy and all, but he'd have beaten him to death. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean that's apples and oranges there, right? For right. Sure. You know, he, while he's fighting, I, I think this is also a, a, some great writing and whatnot for the you know for the the choreography of it. While he's fighting Ox, Brain and Maggie go to once again, you know, for their own you know needs and whatnot. They're busting out the president themselves, and Brain actually does the first, you know kind of brave thing, even though it's in a sniveling, snotty kind of way. You know, he gets into the room and uh, Romero is there. Frank Doubleday's in there. And he's just like, what do you need to see the president for? He's like, oh, the Duke wants me to see him. And like, and he lets his guard down for just a moment and lets Brain in because Brain tells him that he thinks the, was that the president's supposed to have cyanide capsules hidden somewhere in his clothing, you know, and the Duke doesn't want a dead president because that's not going to help anybody. Yep. But he gets in and, you know, in a matter of seconds, Brain stabs and guts uh, Romero while Maggie takes out, uh, she's taken Snake Plissken's pistol, takes out the other three guys in the room and they bust the president out. But they get kind of spotted out. They get one of uh, the Duke's goons kind of spots them as they're leaving and they're, they're skedaddling on out of there. And... Really, I think like this is the perfect that the timing is so perfect because Snake had finally just managed to get the upper hand because they were had entered into round two of the fight and gave them some spiked baseball bats and he had taken out Ox by blasting him in the gut and then hitting him in the back of the head, which once again it was kind of like uh, what you mentioned earlier, Jason, uh, like with seeing a chainsaw. You don't necessarily need to see the saw tearing into flesh. You just need to know and kind of, you know, you, the implication is enough. Like when exactly. he blasts him in the back of the head with that big spike bat, they could have done it where his head kind of exploded and blood went everywhere, but they don't. It's just a simple kind of thunk. Ox 
stiffens up, falls forward dead on the ropes, and he's he's gone. This is the point where I think, at least I know for me, the first time when I saw this, I was shocked because everybody starts chanting for Snake. Everybody was chanting for him to die because the Duke's like, you know, they sent their best man in, you know, and tomorrow we roll down the 69th Street Bridge, we're going to have the best man leading the, the way from the head up, you know, from the neck up on the hood of my car. Yeah, you know, like right in between the chandeliers. Right. You, you know, because this guy is all about the theatrics. But, you know, everybody starts chanting for Snake. They're all going, Snake, Snake, Snake. Well, that's when the Duke finds out that the brain took, uh, brain and Mackey took the president. So they announce it to everybody. Everybody just skips out. Everybody runs. Nobody gives a shit about Snake anymore, which is really, I think, the only reason why Snake lives. Because if they had even uh, paid attention for about 30 more seconds, I think the Duke was going to take him out, to be quite honest. Yeah. So, you know, just shows you if a different way of writing, how different things could have went. Exactly, yeah, because he, he uh, you can definitely tell he's pissed. Because now you have, you've, you've taken out the the big man on campus and now you're winning over the the crowd which is going to hurt duke so uh yeah i'm 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 with you on that one i'm i'm sure that he was going to he was going to put a bullet in him and be done with it yeah i'm sure that was the plan he, he either would have done it or had one of his goons do it for him but yeah. they wouldn't allow they wouldn't allow snake to probably leave that you know the ring at no. least not alive no, he would have never left. Never left on his feet. He'd have left on his back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then, well, get everybody's in a race now. Snake is in a race to get to the World Trade Center because he knows that's where the the glider is because that's where he left it, and he knows Brain is smart enough to take the president there. But he shows up. They're having some trouble with a gang that's trying to cut the cord to the glider, which they do just as Snake shows up. And I had to think. Like, how horrible that must have been for the character to run up, because he took the elevator. Now, there's a bit of in this story where they say the the uh, freight elevator will take you down to the 50th floor of the, of the World Trade Center. But from the 50th on down, you have to walk. So now, Snake's been beat up. He's been shot in the leg with a crossbow bolt, and he just had to climb 50 flights of stairs. You're like, uh, no, no wonder he looked like death warmed over by the time he made it to the top of the World Trade Center. I mean, I'm just saying. Exactly. I know it's just a movie, but like, exactly. This to, is the... to see to see your one way off after you've done all that to get sent over the side. Yeah, of the... to see them just. <laughs> it's like, you son of a bitch. It's like you could have at least done it before I got up here. <laughs> right, I could have seen it fall from the ground. Would have saved me a whole lot of time. Right, right. This is the one point, this is the one thing that I can't buy. You know, there's uh, several what-the-fuck moments, as I call them in movies. And there's several in this movie. But this is the, the one moment where my suspension of disbelief, uh, I just can't handle it. When they go to get to their car, you know, uh, Snake gets everybody off the roof. They get back down to the bottom. So now he's climbed back down 50 flights of stairs. So he climbed up 50 now it's climb back down 50. And they're all like half dead. They're all like tore up. They get to Brain's car and it's dead. And here's the what the fuck moment. And I'm, I'm curious about your, your thoughts on this. He says the car won't start. Then they go to flip the hood. There's no more engine there. There's a guy there with a crossbow. Did they really have time 
to take the engine out and stick a dude in there with a crossbow? Like, did the Duke and his guys take that extra three and a half minutes to? I, I'm just wondering what you what you thought about that. Like, you know, I can't explain it. I'm not sure if you can. I there's no way to explain it. I don't know how in the hell you would remove an engine in about three to five minutes and then get rid of it and then have a dude inside. So unless, you know, unless it was uh, in the trunk and (laughs) like some other vehicles and they just forgot about it for a quick minute. But uh, yeah, if I I do, I do see here what the fuck moment because the time frame it would have taken to get rid of that yeah, whole just, engine and everything else, but that's not that's not the way it was written, Cameron. It's not the way it was written. Right, right. It won't wasn't wrote in the script that way, right? That, that's right. And they must have had about twenty guys with a shitload of tools um, that just knew what they were doing. It was teamwork. Teamwork made the dream work for that three and a half minutes. There we go. There we go. We just didn't <laughs> see what was going on with those other six or seven guys that was with the Duke. Must have just had a whole. Boatload of fucking uh, wrenches and shit. Hey, they could have, but they they still managed to escape yet again. They managed to escape the clutches, and Snake pulls out his gun, fires a few rounds off, hits this uh, pipe that shoots everybody with steam, and kind of creates a diversion. And you know, not a very great diversion, but enough for them to get the upper hand and run. And who do they run into? Our good buddy Cabby. Once oh, again, Cabby shows up to save the day. Always there. But that's when we, we, we're getting into the final moments of the film here. And it's action-packed from here on out. We got the 69th Street Bridge chase, where pretty much we'll meet the d- demise of every character. Snake's got his, uh, you know, he's finally got the tape. He got the tape back from, uh, we forgot a little bit about some of the exchange. The Romero character had exchanged uh, the tape for Cabby's hat. So that's when he's like, where's the tape? You know, Snake is asking Brain. He's like, you said you knew where the tape was. Is you know, only reason why I allowed you to come along. And he's like, oh, you know, and Cabby's like, oh, here it is. I got it. So he plays it for a second, verifies it is the real McCoy, sticks it in his pocket, and they go chasing down 69th Street, which is mined. It's got bombs everywhere. And this is a, a plot point they've been driving home through the whole film. This is why, one of the main reasons why, brain is so important to the duke because he has a diagram from the bridge where the bombs were from a guy who had gotten all the way across and knew where all the bombs were they're leading the way and now the duke just doesn't give a shit he's in high speed pursuit with them with his chandelier uh ridden cadillac going after cabbie's old uh you know (laughs) really really old 50s era cab but you know it's a great sequence it's great action sequence but this is where pretty much everybody else dies, and this—it's all kind of cordoned off in this one last little, like five to ten minute sequence. Because one of the bombs goes off, blows the cab in half, takes out poor Cabby, and this is where I'm like, "Is poor Cabby, poor Maggie, but fuck Brain," because Brain gets what he has coming to him. Exactly. Because Brain gets blown up by—they are on foot now after the the. Cabby gets blown up and Cabby dies. Which and which Brain... was which was, might I add, a fantastic explosion to be able to cut the cab directly in half, but only kill one person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that bomb went straight up and cut that cab perfectly in two. Perfectly. Did it not? Perfectly it was in perfectly. Half. Yeah. 
but nobody gets even so much as really even hurt except for Cabby gets half of his face blown off for right. good measure. But uh, and then Brain gets himself blown up by he's telling everybody to go left. Well, he goes left and he gets blown up. And this is where I really felt sorry for both. I uh, that's why I put poor Maggie, poor Cabby, but fuck Brain. Brain was right. just kind of a sniveling little asshole that kind of got what he had coming to him. But like in this moment, you really feel for for Maggie's character because you know she she just looks at Snake without saying a word, just holds her hand out. He just stares at her for a moment, hands over the gun. He knows that she's gonna, you know, what she's gonna do. He doesn't even have to ask her. There's no exchange like, oh, Maggie, this is suicide. None of that kind of bullshit. He tells her once. He's like, Maggie, come on. Brain's dead. Let's go. She holds out her hand for the gun, and he just silently hands it off to her and takes off. And, you know, she, she empties the gun into the Cadillac, but, you know, she ends up getting run over by the Duke. And just this is the one scene that is really bloody in the movie when they show the aftermath of, of Maggie being just completely pulverized by this car. And she's laying there just guts hanging out. That's why I said, poor Maggie. Right. Like, that, Brain should have went out more horrible like that, I think. And you do kind of feel bad for her because you you realize at that instance that she really doesn't have anything else to live for. She you know she knows she's on the run, so she can't go back with the Duke because she's already tried to double cross him, and she's with them. So there's no way that she can go back to to being with any of them. She's already committed, and the one person that was um, being nice to her and, and doing good with her is now gone. So now she's got to stand there like a, and try to at least get them out of there, which I thought was funny because the president just takes off. He's, he's like just doing his own thing, which yeah, I thought he's just was running. He does yeah. not give a shit. No, not caring about any of the, any of the mines or anything. He just, he just takes off running, which that kind of surprised me. That that one was kind of like the. I didn't I didn't see that coming in the in the writing to where he just takes off, but kind of carelessly just running. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't I didn't get that part of it, but I think he was just frantic. I think he was just frantic and knew he was at the how do you want to say, at nearing the finish line, and he just wanted to get out, you know, and was just throwing care to the wind and just running for dear life. Right. But that's when we get our our last little bit of uh, action is the one time that the Duke and Snake Plissken actually kind of meet up and fight. And it's a short fight. I mean, it's only a few punches are thrown. Uh, the Duke empties his gun at Snake as he's hanging. You know, they, they throw a winch down to get, uh, you know, Hawk does. He has a team out there to throw a winch down to get the you know, president up to safety first. Snake is halfway up the wall. And what happens? The fucking asshole president... And I love Donald Pleasance as an actor, but his character here, he's just an asshole. He stops the the winch, so Snake is hanging halfway up the wall. The Duke is about to kill him, but the president just snaps. Like, I think his his poor little brain had just broke, you yeah. know what I mean? And he just machine guns the Duke to death and kind of just laughs at him. He's like, you're the Duke. You're the Duke of New York. You're a number one. And he's just kind of cackling, kind of laughing and crying at the same time. He His his brain had just, I think it just, poor little brain had just broke. Well, I mean, if you think about it, you've you've been ejected out of your plane. 
you've been taken hostage, you've been tortured, you've had your finger cut off, that you've you've been through hell in the in less than twenty four hours, and now you actually get your hands on this gun and you're able to get your retaliation from the guy that's been doing that to you. I think that's yeah, it sent him over the edge, and he was like, "I'm this is it. I'm going to use Snake as a as kind of like a dangler there, and he's going to focus his uh, eyes and everything on him, and then I'm just going to take this bastard out, and that's what he does." Yeah, it's kind of. I mean, it's not anticlimactic. I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for here, but it's you know, you know, I guess you know, you go into a movie like this, most people would probably expect. I would imagine the general movie populace would expect Snake to be the one to take out the Duke. But in the end, it's the president. And I, I kind of like that idea, you know, and uh, showing him kind of not breaking character, but, you know, breaking that calm demeanor of being, you know, well, I'm regal, I'm the president, you know, and everything. But yeah, yeah. He, he, poor Donald Pleasant's mind just uh, snapped this a little bit. He gets back with the tape. Pliskin does. He gets over the over the over the uh, the wall, and with no help from with little to no help from the president. You know, on that one, right? He gives Lee Van Cleef is like before the leave him let him, uh, you know, neutralize the bombs in his neck. Will let uh, Cronenberg do that? Hauk shows up and is like the snake, or that's not the snake, <laughs> the tape Pliskin, you know, and uh, he gives it to him. He, you know. Scans his neck, neutralizes the bomb, and he looks down at his wristwatch with three seconds to go. And Snake is just looking at him, and you really think he's going to make good on his pro- his uh, promise from earlier when he's like, he's like, you know what? When I get if I get out of this or I get back from this, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you really think he's going to like make good on that? I thought he was, but you know, I, yeah, I, I thought he was. Yeah, the first time I watched it, that's exactly what I thought was going to happen. I was almost almost a little bit let down, but that's not just not Snake style. But they're getting the president ready. This is in the final few minutes of the film. They're getting the president ready with the uh, they're they're shaving him. They're putting makeup on him so he doesn't look all beat up. They're putting him in a you know a nice suit. You know, making him look all presentable because he's got to be on in you know four and a half minutes. And Snake has just one question for him. You know, and he's just like, you know, a lot of people died, you know, trying to get you out. I just want to know how you felt about that. As the president just really kind of snubs him. At least that's the way I felt about it. He was just like, oh, well, the country, uh, you know, appreciates their sacrifice. But, hey, I got to be on in like two and a half minutes. So, you know, kind of goodbye. And, you know, Snake, though, gets the last laugh, you know, uh, as he's walking away. The president goes to you know put on the tape. He's like, even though I will not be present at this historic summit meeting, I want to offer this in our hopes to bring together our worlds in peace. And he pops in the tape, but it's not his tape. It's one of Cabby's uh, old ragtime music tapes, and it's like you know da 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 <laughs> I, I love it. I love that look when the president just is glares and his eyes go down and you can tell that looks at just like, oh, I am so fucked. Right. And that last shot, I love the last shot, the, one of the best endings of a movie ever when Snake Plissken is walking away, just unraveling the tape, tearing it up, tossing it aside with a smile on his face. And then we just fade to black. Um, yeah. Great movie. 
nicely summed up at the end. I I, I love the ending. I, I know uh, I have read in some message boards and some groups or whatnot. Some people think it's a little anticlimactic, but I think it's uh, just cleverly written, you know, and it is and just it's just not your atypical action movie because it's right. not you know for as action packed as it is, it's more of a you know. It's kind of a sci-fi western, you know, in my opinion. But yeah, well, he but, gets he gets the last fuck you, you know, and that's that's yeah. what I liked about it was he didn't have to be the guy like like you were saying he didn't have to be the guy to kill the duke he didn't have to be that guy, you know he he was still trying to be that you know that American you know hey a lot of people died and what do you think and kind of got snubbed off again so he's like. Eh? All right, well, fuck you, then fuck you. And this is the way we're going to end this. Right. And I'm getting the last laugh. I thought it was great. Now, I have a question for you, and I pose this question to everybody I know that I've talked to this movie about. Do you think if the president would have given Snake a different an- answer, if he'd have answered more like a human being and actually showed, I don't know, some empathy, you know, and actually treated Snake with respect, do you think Snake would have handed that tape over to him? Absolutely. Or do you think? See, I think he, I think he would have too. He was just testing them out. You know, I, I, I don't think he planned that final fuck you until the president had, you know, kind of snubbed them. You know, yeah. I've, I've always and thought I, that. I always thought that he probably would have. And I think that's why they, they did it like that. I think that's why they, um, ended with, him asking. You know, because from what I get of the film and from his character, he was, he's, he's a stand-up guy as far as trusting, you know, as long as you don't do me wrong, you'll be good to go. And that was his thing was, you know, right at the beginning where he's like, Oh, the president's now, you know, what president kind of, you know, had that bad taste in his mouth. So he's giving the president that, that time to make it right. And, you know, if if he would, I do believe that if he would have uh, answered it a little bit more sincere and and actually, you know, showed some uh, compassion, then I think that he would have given him the tape and uh, and walked away the same. But, um, you know, it was like I said, it was his last fuck you. Uh, You don't care about them. Well, then fuck you. I don't don't care care about about you. you. (laughs) So. Yeah. And even though. uh... Well, we're not mentioning the sequel much here tonight because the sequel leaves a little bit of something to be desired. But Escape from LA, he does, he does the same thing. You know, he kind of he, he gives. He's always the one to give that final fuck you, and I love that about Snake Plissken. He he has the final word. Right, and if if memory serves me right, when he's right at the very end, when he's like, "Hey, hey, Snake," you know, talking to him. Did you catch at the oh, very what? end where he's like, "It's Pliskin." Yeah, because so he, so he, he kept is, calling him Snake. Yep. Yeah, he completely yep, I, changes I, it around, and I and I'm like, "Nicely done, <laughs> nicely done." Just just that little, just that last little. Ah, I thought that was great writing there. I and I love the part too right before that, and he's like, "You gonna kill me now, Snake?" He's like, "I'm, I'm too tired. Maybe later." Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> letting him like you know i could kill you right now but i'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna do it not right now too tough uh, so so i gotta ask uh 
favorite scene and favorite one-liner of, of the film? Well, the one-liners I, I like because it's, it's not something, and I, and I don't think that a lot of people um, looked at it like you did with the, oh, Snake Plissken, I thought you were dead, and then everybody ends up dying. Um, that yep. is, I like those kind of things in, in movies, you know, where you, um, things that you really need to pay attention to, uh, like, um, you know, the, the clock on the wall always has the same time, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And that's, and that's what they did here. I like that. I, 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 I really enjoyed that. Um, favorite scene. I like the fight scene because I I immediately thought Thunderdome, Road Warrior, you know, this is cool. And it right. leaves to your imagination how how he dies. You know, you didn't have to see that all that I like more of of those kind of death scenes than the chopping the heads off, cutting the bodies in half. It's like eh. I like um just getting a glimpse of it, but not having to see it. Kind all. of the, like the subtlety of it. Right. I, I like the scene when you first see the Cadillac, man. I, I, I love the chandeliers <laughs> on the front of that car. Um, oh, me too. Me too. I, I think my favorite scene though is pro- is probably either that the introduction of the Duke, or that Im- initial scene where Hauk and uh, Snake are sitting in the office and they have that exchange about, you know, president of what? Get a new president, you know? Like, fuck right. off, leave me alone. <laughs> well, I was going to say, we can go ahead and get into our final thoughts and reviews. And since you're a first-time guest here, I'll, uh, how we do things is usually we do, just kind of sum up our thoughts on the film as a whole and do a rating on a scale from 1 to 10. 10 being the best and one being, well, the worst. Uh, summary of the film. I, I think that the idea and the way it was written uh, was way before its time. Um, like I said, right in the very beginning, uh, we're not out of the realm of, of possibility here uh, with having something like this. Um, I thought it was well written. I was well cast. Um, anytime I can see Adrian Barbeau in a film, I'm in. Um, <laughs> I would rate this film uh, to me at um, I'd give it a solid eight. Um, I, you know, and it's just kind of the some of the cheesiness of it um, was you know a little over the top for me, um, but. I, all in all, I I would definitely watch it again, um, and I may here in the next week or so watch it again just because. Um, number one, I'm I'm interested, like you were saying. I I want to know how many times they say that in the movie now because it's it it happens all the time, but um, I like films like this where you can go back and and you see different things and you you get the meanings of um, different lines and. And different story plots and things. So I I enjoy being able to go back and watch movies a few times and catch different things each time you watch it. I don't like films where 
you pretty much get everything in the gist the first time and you try to go back and watch it and it's like, yeah, it was the same as I watched it the first time and I kind of lose interest. Um, but this one, I, I don't. And I, and I really enjoyed watching it again and I will probably watch it again. Um, I got to agree with about everything you said there. Um, it does have a high rewatchability. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, there's something new to appreciate every time you watch it, you know, and hell, I've, I've, like I said, I've seen it more times than I can count. I've completely lost track, dozens, maybe upwards of a hundred. I've watched this movie so many times. I've worn out many, many copies and I'm a collector. I have it on VHS, which is what I watched it on today. I watched it two weeks ago on the special edition uh, Laserdisc, and I still have it on Blu-ray. So I'm a, definitely a hardcore collector. I think the Snake Plissken character is one of the most iconic characters ever created on film uh, by by one of my you know favorite actors. Kurt Russell is in probably my top five, and. You know, is this expertly crafted? The the story is so good. The music is phenomenal. I listen to this soundtrack. It's it's in a heavy rotation. I, I've got it on vinyl. I've got it in a CD in my car. It's always in a heavy rotation. But it's got a great cast. Like you said, Adrian Barbeau, Donald Pleasance, Isaac Hayes, Lee Van Cleef, Ernest Borgnine. Everybody is is great in it. This movie was. Uh, was and still is highly influential for me. It's one of the movies that is the reason why I do what I do. It's one of the main re- it's, you know, it's one of the top five films of why I'm uh, a director, a writer, and a filmmaker just in general. So for me, the only thing I want to be different uh, from Jan, I, I got to give it a full 10. I don't ha- hand out a whole lot of 10s. You know, I hand out a lot of 9s. But this movie is a full ten. Um, it does have some cheese factor, you know. But I love it for the cheese factor. I think it's kind of prophetic of a film. It kind of shows you the direction of that we might already be heading. Like you said, it's not out of the realm of possibility. And I think it was way ahead of its time for a movie that's you know now forty years old. And really, the one scene, the one real imperfection is the guy in the engine compartment. <laughs> right. I, I just, I, if I meet, I've met. Uh, John Carpenter once before, but I only had a few minutes to to meet him and get his autograph. You know, it was very it was very much the end of the day, and he was trying to get out, so I didn't want to take up a lot of his time. But I would probably ask him like, "Okay, how do you explain this? Out of all your movies, this is the one thing I want explained. <laughs> how did the guy get in the engine compartment?" <laughs> but yeah, I'm I, willing to overlook it. You know, I agree. Like I said, it, you know, with with the cheese factor, just. Some of the things I was just like, ah, man, that's, but, you know, that's, that's just, that's just me. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. I, I love the film. Um, and I, and I, an eight is still one, uh, is a hell of a rating. That's still pretty damn good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, for me to give something a 10 is, I mean, I really have to be blown away. Um, and I, you know, like I said, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I am going to watch it again because, like I said, it, it's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, so I, I noticed a bunch more this time around, and I want to watch it again to, to even appreciate it more. Um, but 
the writing was fantastic. The the casting was amazing. A lot of a lot of really big names and a lot of really good actors that uh, put this together. So yeah, one of the best ensemble casts like ever, truly. Now, now that we've probably exhausted every resource we possibly can about Escape from New York, before we take off for the evening, uh, want to tell everybody a little bit about what it is that you do and what you got going on, and like you know where they can find you online. Uh, well, I am my day job. Um, I am a sheriff's deputy uh, here in Ohio. I've been uh, law enforcement uh, 25 years. Um, married, have three wonderful children. And in my downtime, um, we make movies, we do podcasts. Um, myself and a very good friend of mine, Jay Lynch, um, we run LEP Productions. And uh, we do podcasts, we do short films, we do um, skit roles, that kind of thing. Um, you can find us at LEP Productions on the YouTube channel and Facebook. Um, I'm Jason Arthur on Facebook. And feel free to send me a, a request or if you have any questions for me, I'd be more than happy to answer them in a, um, in a message. I'm very approachable, very easy to talk to. I, you know, I, I don't have, uh, I don't talk to, I don't talk to people kind of thing. I very approachable. Um, I've been fortunate enough over the last six years or so to get into acting and, uh, met fantastic people like Cameron, um, who have helped me along the way. And, um, constantly learning constantly uh, you know just uh, i'm in awe by um, being around some of these guys they, it, the knowledge um, that you guys have about movies and films and writing and things like that is uh, is amazing and uh, I, I truly enjoy the time that i do get to spend with you guys and like you said here in what two weeks uh, we'll be on set for four or five days together that's about what i can do uh, I got to get back here to work, but um, yeah, I just we're I, being uh, taking a little five day vacation down to Florida to shoot a movie because considering where we're at, you're in Ohio, I'm in Illinois. I'm, I'm especially looking forward to going to Florida, even if you know traveling during COVID times is not you know most ideal thing in the world. But I'm gonna enjoy the freaking weather. I can tell you that much. Absolutely, it, like I was coming home from work tonight, and it was. 30 miles an hour on the expressway because the snow was coming down so hard that it was almost impossible to drive. So I'm looking forward to 60s and 70s in Florida weather. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, we're going to be on set for, I'll be on set a few days longer than you. Um, I'll be cooking for everybody and acting as well for a little bit uh, for the uh, Lost Bastards, Scott Tepperman and Jim O'Rear. And some of our other good friends will be out there too. Jerry Reeves, another uh co-host on the show looking forward to seeing him again and uh looking forward to seeing you again too so actually like seeing people it's like after not like seeing anybody for almost a year in 2020 i'm kind of looking forward to venturing out just a little bit and actually getting like to see real live human beings again right yeah we uh i actually got to see you right before all this nonsense happened and it's shit it's almost been a year um, 
when I yeah, came to film with year... you for Death Care. Well, it'll be the same. We shot the second week of February. Yeah, I think it was, or the third week. So it'll be almost a year to the day by the time we end up uh, on set again for Cruel Summer. Isn't that isn't that amazing how time just flies, man? It just flies. But yeah, every month of 2020 has felt like it's been a year underwater. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Now, what, uh, what is the, the names of a couple of your podcasts? I know you have uh, Stirring the Pot, but you also have a couple others that you do. Um, Sundays at 8 p.m., we do a show. Uh, Jay and I do a show called Getting to Know. And uh, we feature actors, writers, producers, directors, musicians, authors, uh, cryptid, paranormal, you name it. Um, and we bring them on the show for an hour and it's strictly promoting them. It's all about getting to know that person or that group. Uh, you know, just trying to get more people out there. We, we do a lot of, um, do a lot of promoting for, for everybody. And I, I think that's key, um, to help each other out and to, uh, open other people's eyes on some people that, you know, you, you may not ever, get to know or you may not ever meet um so we do that show every sunday um and then mondays um uh, jay and his wife Teresa do sit chat and laugh with the lynches um that's more of a uh, like a family style uh show and then tuesdays yeah. we do stirring the pot uh with myself jay and then joe kudo uh the three of us it's more of an adult themed show um, we do a lot of just dumb, crazy shit. We have useless facts of knowledge. We eat and drink a lot of dumb shit. Um, those, all I the saw shows. the time when you were eating bugs. You yeah. guys were eating bugs one time. Oh, we eat bugs <laughs> and, um, we drink dumb shit. Uh, we just, one of the, sh um, one of the channels, uh, that Joe runs is Skeptical Edge TV and we had, he hit 300 subscribers. So we did uh, shots of Jägermeister and mayonnaise together. That was... Oh, that sounds that sounds totally disgusting. Oh. It sounds exactly like it tastes. Absolutely like shit. It was horrible. Okay. Um, before, before we go for the, the evening, though, I got to ask you one thing. What is the worst thing that you guys have, have eaten and or drank on that show? Um, well, we did, we did a live show, um, at the Rhodes Hotel, um, in Indiana. Uh, it's a haunted location. We were there to, to do some filming and the three of us were actually together and uh, we drank clam juice and that was horrid. Um, Ugh. Ugh. Uh, we, it just, it, it, it made us gag. It was on the verge of puking. Um, but again, we, we do it for entertainment. We do it for, for the people watching. So um, that was probably the worst second into the Jägermeister and mayonnaise because I can't stand mayonnaise. And to drink a big clump of it in a Jägermeister shot was not my favorite. Um, oh, I can imagine not. <laughs> and then we've, um, God, we've eaten scorpions and worms and crickets and all kinds of shit um 
I didn't really care. We had a tarantula. I didn't care for the tarantula. That was not my favorite. Uh, but the one that screwed me up the worst, um, I ate a whole box of the hot um, jelly beans. They were like sriracha and ghost pepper and all that. Ooh. And I ate, I ate the whole box at one time, and that was hot. That wasn't uh, that wasn't a fun time. Not but, pleasant. No, and all of our all the stuff we do is uh, live chat rooms and live video, so you can see us doing all the stuff, and you can interact with us right then, right now. So um, we have a good time doing that, and then we produce one more show on Wednesday nights uh, with Tina and Teresa called the TNT Show, and that's more your metaphysical. Um, they do psychic readings and things like that. So we have a. Nice a huge platform of different kinds of shows that we do throughout the week. Um, and, you know, we're just trying to give back a little bit and uh, trying to put some stuff out there for people that when you're bored or whatever, you want to see crazy shit, tune in. If you want to get psychic readings and talk more, you know, on the same plane, you can tune in on Wednesdays. If you're, uh, if you have something that you want to, to get out there, you know, let us know and we can have you on a Sunday show. So, um, just a bunch of different platforms. Very cool, very cool. I, I have a lot of fun listening to your shows. I listen. I try to listen in live whenever I can, whenever I'm available. But I especially like stirring the pot. This the more, like you said, the more adult kind of humor and stuff. It is. Yeah. If if, if you have children, it's always a fun time with you guys. Because that's all we're trying to do. If if you can just come come home and and turn us on and get a smile or get a laugh then we've done our job and you know especially with everything that's going on now people need just that little bit of time just to forget about all the bullshit forget about you know the negative and and whatever that may have happened to you that day and just you know join us and have a laugh and uh you know, just forget about things for a little bit. And that's that's our goal there on Tuesday nights. And that's, you know, that's pretty much my sole goal to with, with this show is just uh, to have an ex- one, to have an excuse to talk with my friends on a forum and talk about movies, but to give people that, that little bit of a break, you know, give them a little bit of a break from the n- normal humdrum, you know, things in their life. You know, if they just need a, an escape or a laugh, come on aboard you know absolutely and and you you actually you learn a ton um just by listening to you because you're i mean a wealth of knowledge in this uh in this category and i uh i love listening to you just picking up things and learning things uh i i you you're you're an amazing friend sir oh well, uh, well thank you sir i appreciate your friendship very much you know, uh, you know, we, we don't always uh, get to hang out and whatnot, but you know, you're you're all you're, you're always there. You know what I mean? It's uh, you know, you know, when I was having issues the other day, you were the the only person that called me. You know, so I, you know, appreciate that. Absolutely, but that, brother. But that being said, I think we'll call this evening to a close. We will see each other again here in uh, well, shit, in about. 12 days, 12, 13 days, I think. Right. Well, we should, we should say 
it's great seeing you right now because when this airs, we'll actually be together. So I'm having a fun time with you right now, Cameron. It's yeah. a, it's great to see you. <laughs> it's great. Good to see you too, sir. <laughs> All righty, folks. Well, thank you once again for tuning in to uh, Cinema Degenerations, John Carpenter Appreciation Month. I appreciate you taking some time to listen to us get all nostalgic about these crazy flicks that we love so much. And I want to thank you, Jason, for being my guest for the first time. I was, I'm glad to finally have you on. It was, a, it was an honor, and I appreciate the invite. And uh, hopefully you all have a great night, and, and thanks for tuning in. Yep. All righty, folks. Thank you once again for listening. Have a good evening. You touch me, guys. If you're not in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. If you come back in, he dies. Twenty seconds. I'm ready to talk. Nineteen. Eighteen. What do you want? Seventeen. Sixteen. Let's go. Let's go.